This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. This morning we're beginning a series of sermons on reasons for our Christian faith. I read some time ago about a young pastor who once announced to his congregation that he was going to preach a similar series. This preacher had just come from a situation in which he was forced to defend and explain his faith to many who denied the truths of our faith. After listening to this series of sermons, one member of this young man's congregation said to him, Preacher, no matter what you say, I still believe in God. Well, obviously this person's experiences were quite different from those of her pastor. She had never really encountered anybody who did not share her basic beliefs. And so when the pastor began to probe the depths of reasons for his faith, then this lady wrongly interpreted this as an attack on her faith. There are many such people in our churches today, those who have never taken a serious in-depth look at the reasons why they believe what they believe. While these people are many, yet there's another group which is growing rapidly. These are people who are outright openly unbelievers. What we shall begin this morning is an attempt to answer the overall question, which is the theme of all these sermons, how can we believe? I want to acknowledge a debt of gratitude to Robert Dean and uh, insight he's given to me in a book he has by the, the same title I'm using for this series. And so during these next weeks, I invite you to join with me in a spiritual pilgrimage. I'm going to be speaking to two groups of people. One, those who do not have strong beliefs or definite convictions. It may be that some of you who are listening to me might honestly admit to being an unbeliever in some of the truths we're going to examine. And the second group, which I would assume is represented by a majority of those who are listening to me now, will be Christian believers who would like to enrich and, in, and to deepen your faith. And so, for these few moments uh, each week, we're going to be on a quest and I invite you to join me on that quest for God's truth. On August the 6th and 7th, 1961, that's over 62 years ago, the Russian cosmonaut German Titov orbited the earth 17 times in 25 hours. He was uh, the second Russian actually to orbit the earth. The United States was far behind in the race for space. And when he orbited the earth, the Russians gloated over their achievements while the Americans winced and squirmed. Then to add insult to injury, Titov proved to be quite a talkative celebrity, as is in the case with many Americans when a person excels in one area of achievement, we assume erroneously that this one automatically becomes an authority who can speak on every subject. 
Even so, Titoff was interviewed often and gave his views on many subjects. He could not resist speaking on the subject of religion. Maybe it was to bolster the communist line of atheism. Titoff claimed that his space flight had proved the atheistic view that there is no God. After all, he had been in the heavens, and he had not seen God or any evidence of God. Those who agreed with this atheistic communist were not all behind the Iron Curtain either, or from Russia. There were atheists all over the world who nodded their heads and said, That's right, I told you so. We are living today in what some people have called the age of unbelief. Lots of people have serious difficulty believing in God. We need to take just a moment to clarify some terms I'm going to be using today. Atheists are those who claim to deny the existence of God. They say there is no God. But there's another group which does not go so far as the atheists. These are called the agnostics, who say they don't know whether God exists or not. Agnostics would not say there's no God. They would say no one can be sure either way. But I think there's a third group of unbelievers that we have not heard so much about, but who are everywhere around us today. These are what are called logical positivists. They think that any discussion about the existence of God is nonsense, a waste of time. They say nothing can be proved, so why bother with all these discussions? There's one idea that all three of these groups have in common. That is, the scientific age we now live in has put an end to faith in God. They would say that if God cannot be scientifically proved, then he does not exist. I heard about a group of army officers who once got to talking about religion. One of them said, I was raised on the scientific method, and no one has ever been able to prove to me scientifically that there is a God. Just about the time as he was speaking, the men noticed that a chaplain had joined the group. The skeptic began to apologize to the chaplain, saying he intended no disrespect, but that was the way he felt. The chaplain replied, oh, that's quite all right. As a matter of fact, I have a problem which is very similar to your problem, sir. I was raised on the theological method, not the scientific method. I was raised on the theological method, and no one has ever been able to prove to me theologically that there's such a thing as an atom. But the officer, the other one replied, but sir, who ever heard of finding an atom by theology? Exactly, agreed the chaplain. And who ever heard of trying to prove the existence of God scientifically? Let me tell you a second story, and then I'll try to bring these two stories into meaning. A college student once came to his pastor after the first year in college. This student was all upset, having been away from home for the first time in his life. During that year, he had been exposed to a lot of ideas that he had never dreamed of during his sheltered years at home and in his local church. The student announced to his home pastor, I've decided that I don't believe in God. The very wise pastor 
said, well, have a seat here and then tell me what kind of God you don't believe in. Chances are I might not believe in that kind of God either. I might be with you. And that student then began to say he could not accept the idea of faith as being able to believe what you know is not so. Accepting something for which there's no proof. Belief in God is an act of sheer superstition, said the student. The pastor finally spoke. He said, faith in God is based on evidence just as surely as science is. The difference is in the kind of evidence upon which each is based. The pastor reached over to a vase which was on his desk and took out a rose from that vase. The pastor said, this rose is red. We have scientific evidence for this. But suppose I say, this rose is beautiful. You cannot prove that scientifically, but isn't it still true? I think these two stories illustrate a basic problem. People who come from different backgrounds have difficulties sometimes in communicating. The same words can mean different things to different people. Words like faith, proof, evidence don't mean the same thing in fields of science and religion. That skeptical army officer and the college student were speaking out of a totally different background from that of the chaplain and the pastor. Many people who say they do not believe in God tend to assume that their own position is based on solid, objective evidence. They also assume that those who do believe in God do not base their beliefs on solid evidence, but on blind, gullible superstition. In other words, the unbelievers often think their position is based on proof and evidence, while the believer's position is based on some nebulous thing called faith. And the assumption on the part of many non-believers is not accurate at all. Everybody operates to some degree on the principle of faith in certain basic areas. The scientist, for example, has faith that the basic laws of the universe hold true time and time again. The law of gravity, for instance, is something that the scientist believes holds true every time, not just occasionally. The true scientist does not claim absolute proof for some position. However, he does accept something as true if the evidence strongly supports it. In the same kind of way, we cannot prove God either with scientific tests or with logical arguments. If we could prove God in this way, then there'd be no need for faith. And believing in God really is an act of faith. Go back and read Hebrews 11:6. 6. The Christian does believe that there is evidence to support his faith in God. Last Sunday, we looked at some of these evidences of our faith. Things like the universe, human beings, and history all attest as evidence in their own way, and they give us a great degree of help in our faith in God. There are several schools of thought as to how we can believe in God and defend our faith. On the one hand, there are those who say that God can be proved purely on rational, intellectual grounds. 
The main way to lead people to the Lord, they say, is by a convincing argument which answers all the questions that anybody can raise. Now, the problem with this approach is that it just about erases the need for faith. But there are those who are at the other extreme of this thought who say that belief in God is not intellectual agreement, but rather it's personal commitment and trust. These would say there's no proof at all that God exists. I think there's an element of truth in both of these positions. An element of faith is certainly required to please God. But our Lord does not call for us to give a blind gullibility that flies directly against the face of reality. Some of the greatest minds on earth have been those who have exercised a strong belief in God and in Jesus Christ as God's revealed Son. I mentioned that Russian cosmonaut Titov earlier. Perhaps you'll recall also that in contrast to this atheistic communist, the first three human beings who orbited the moon bore witness to their faith in God. The astronauts of Apollo 8, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders concluded their televised 1968 Christmas message to Earth by reading Genesis 1, verses 1 through 10, which begins, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And each of these three men read some verse or some verses from the beginning passage in the Bible in Genesis. Another great scientist, Werner von Braun, who led in de developing America's rocket program, had this to say, I regard the Creator and His creation as one entity. To me, science and religion are like two windows in a house through which we look at the reality of the Creator and the laws manifested in His creation. Basically, there really is no conflict at all between our Christian faith and science. They're like two tracks on a railroad, both of which need to be there in order for the train to run smoothly and safely. How can we believe in God in a scientific age? For those of us who accept the reality of the Bible as being the Word of God, we have ample reason. It is going to be rather interesting, perhaps, to see that in all these messages and, and Sundays that follow today, we'll probably end up at the same place, looking at Jesus, the greatest manifest, manifestation of God that we have ever seen. The Apostle Paul speaks very eloquently of Jesus in his letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ as being the one who is really the creator of all. I want to take time to read those verses from the contemporary English version. Colossians 1. If you have your Bible, you might want to follow along with me. Christ is exactly like God, who cannot be seen. He is the firstborn Son, superior to all creation. Everything was created by Him, everything in heaven and on earth, everything seen and unseen, including all forces and powers, all rulers and authorities. All things were created by God's Son, and everything was made for Him. God's Son was before all else, 
and by him everything is held together. He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the very beginning, the first to be raised from death, so that he would be above all others. God himself was pleased to live in his Son, and God was pleased for him to make peace by sacrificing his blood on the cross, so that all beings in heaven and on earth would be brought back to God. What a beautiful statement from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate reason for our faith in God. Those who have seen Jesus have seen God, for he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now there will be those who may be able to out-argue us about philosophical reasons for our faith or our belief in God. There'll be those who may be able to confuse us no end about many points of science and our faith. But when we know that Jesus has come to live in our lives, when we know that he has made a difference in us, then there is nothing at all that a critic can say to damage us or to destroy our faith. Because Jesus lives today in our hearts, our lives, and he's made a difference in the life of one who truly is a Christian devoted to him. Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote it so beautifully in a little chorus that we sing sometimes. Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name, Jesus. You know another hymn that we sing sometimes. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. John Peterson wrote those words. Will you pray with me? Oh God, thank you so much for the fact that we can have a firm faith and we can believe that you are alive and active and well through your son Jesus. And you're alive today even in this scientific age in which we live, that so many people try to argue that there's no God. We know that you're alive, Lord, and we thank you that you live in the hearts of those who let you come in. Live in us, we pray. Cleanse us, forgive us for our sins, and let us receive the salvation that Jesus alone can give. This we pray in his precious name. Amen.